So my question to them is, well, where exactly is this water coming from? Is it sustainable? Um, uh, are you accounting for our our current conditions of of being in a long-term 20-year mega drought? Right now, that water source would be drawing from the same one soon to be getting cuts. That's not to say companies running these data centers aren't trying to reduce their water footprint. Some use air conditioning systems, while others are experimenting with using methods like free air cooling, which uses fresh outdoor air to cool a space. However, it only works in cooler climates. If you want to talk about things like maybe using uh, reclaimed or recycled water, uh, wastewater, treated wastewater, um, then those perhaps are more viable solutions. As of now, that's not the case with this latest approval. Once completed, this one facility will use the same amount of water on a daily basis as 9,200 homes, something Vice Mayor Duff just couldn't ignore. If we weren't in this cutback already, it might be different, but we are in a danger zone. Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 84 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. And uh, it's it's been a while since we've done a, a kind of uh, a news roundup, you know, I'm twirling my lasso. I'm throwing it out into the, into the ranch of the news. I'm pulling in some juicy, some juicy heifers that we can, uh, we can examine and talk about. We can do a little roundup, you know, <laughs> I kind of lost that metaphor <laughs> halfway through. <laughs> oh, good. Yeehaw, it's the news roundup. Uh, but there's a lot of tech news going on, a lot of financial news going on, a lot of just really interesting stuff for us to talk about. So I think we're just going to do an episode, just kind of running through the headlines of the day. I want to start off with this really interesting uh, Financial Times article that I read from, you know, came out a couple weeks ago. Uh, it's called Amazon Effect Sets the Tone for U.S. Workers Remuneration. Can never say that word right. Remuneration. Um, but it, it's, it's super, it's, it's really interesting because it's like now the, now the business community, now Amazon's uh, competitors are getting in on the game of like trying to dogpile on Amazon, but you know, for different reasons, right? Where whereas we, you know, we critique Amazon and there's so many just like investigative articles now, that big ass New York Times one, right? Like, you know, even the New York Times is getting on the getting on the ball. Um, you know, looking at the 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 rampant labor exploitation, the really awful practices of Amazon's business model and the warehouses. But businesses are are starting to point their finger at Amazon for the opposite. So this article starts off by saying companies struggling to find workers as the US economy reopens from the worst effects of the pandemic pandemic have blamed higher unemployment benefits, limited immigration, and childcare challenges. Now, some are pointing to another factor, Amazon. So, 
I mean, I, I like those, that, that list of, uh, uh <laughs> that list of reasons why companies are struggling off from the very beginning, right? They're like, right. one, these companies, these, these workers, they want benefits. Mm. Two, like, we can't get, because of COVID, we can't get like immigration from Mexico, like people mm. who are willing to work illegally for like, you know, $3 an hour. Like our whole business model is built on that. This yeah. is the backbone of the American economy. And it's, it's funny that the implicit thing there, all those three things are, okay, people want money, right? Be, or people want money more than we're willing to give them because higher unemployment benefits is because they would like an adequate living wage or an adequate wage to live on if they're not going to be working, right? Limited immigration or you don't have a cheap pool of labor anymore to exploit and throw to the wayside. Child care challenges. Uh, having a care is pretty fucking expensive in this country and mm-hmm. taking either because you're, if you're working, you need someone to watch the kid, right? Or just having a kid, getting war flashbacks to the health classes where they made us tabulate how much it costs to have a baby. <laughs> Did you ever have to do yeah. that? <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, even in Australia where uh, like childcare is like subsidized to a degree, like friends of mine that have kids pay like $150 a day for childcare. That's I mean, wild. It's, it's like a lot of people like, I mean, this is, you know, this is a trope because it's true, but you know, so many people end up getting jobs just to pay for childcare. Right. It's mm-hmm. just like, like I have a job so I can pay for my, for childcare, like nothing else. That's all wild. It's thousands of dollars a month. Mm-hmm. A lot of places people just have kids to, to watch kids. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, it's like, you know, I got two cats cause the second cat it's not, and it's it's less, it's less of an additional marginal cost, right? Because mm-hmm. it's two cats I can watch each other, each other. So the amount of time I have to spend if I'm busy radically decreases. I mean, I got two cats because I love because I love cats. But <laughs> right, if we were gonna, if we're gonna, if we're gonna economize it, right? Then that would be you could look at it and say like, okay, the second cat's a lot cheaper, right? Because mm-hmm. it's a, it's an increase in cat food by. The other real cause don't materialize unless they get sick, God forbid, or, and, and the other real ones, savings that they do, like playing with each other, also just making me a little bit happier. And they, they, they tangible, tangible, they're a tangible media. And I'm sure the same, you know, with kids, right? I watched my sister helped, helped raise my little, my youngest brother, you know, um, that's, that's money you don't have to spend because you had another kid to do that. Right. Uh, and so, you know, going back, what, what these businesses are pointing to is the fact that um, Amazon, you know, you know, made a big deal about how it pays its workers $15 an hour now, right? Which, you know, as, as you know, many people, many economists have pointed out that this is actually lowering the wages for warehouse work, you know, but they trumpeted as like, you know, this is unskilled labor. We're paying, you know, we're volunteering to pay $15 a, a you know, minimum wage or $15 an hour, um, you know, which is, which is very high above minimum wage, which, you know, a lot of companies, a lot of big box retailers like Walmart and Target, 
you know, fast food joints like McDonald's, retail stores, right? There's a chief, the chief executive of Levi Strauss is talking about, and he says, quote, we have folks that are right around the corner from Amazon warehouses and Amazon is not afraid to pay $20 an hour in some locations. You know, you know what, what these people are really revealing is that their whole business model is based on the fact that wages have, minimum wage has been stagnant for decades, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas inflation keeps going up, corporate profits c- profits keep going up, but their whole business model is based on this idea that minimum wage will never go up, right? And so Amazon, because Amazon has hired so many people and is like, you know, I've called it in an earlier episode, right? They're strip mining the reserve army of labor, right? They're mm-hmm. just burning and churning, hiring so many people, pulling people away from other jobs um, that they might be doing that it's having this, you know, quote unquote, Amazon effect on the economy because of it. And it's also interesting, you know, like I was talking to you before the the show, right? I think the Amazon effect is twofold, right? I mean, because on the one hand, it really is, you know, that shift in wage that has an effect, you know, and, 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 and unfolds in other ways, like you were talking about. And then there's also the fact that like the Amazon effect is, or more generally, there's like a long, there's a long-standing uh, trend in labor conditions that is encapsulated perfectly by Amazon and an exploitation, right? Over the, you know, there's um, there was a journalist at the Wall Street Journal who made this uh, point on Twitter was uh, Christopher Mims, and he was saying, you know, one of the underappreciated effects or trends is that working conditions have been horrible and have gotten worse mm-hmm. over the past few decades, along with white wage stagnation, right? And so. Raising wages or wage effects are 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 a big chunk of like what's going on, but also like a lot of people are, if you especially if you read those profiles, right? They're leaving because their jobs are shitty, and their jobs are shitty not just because they paid them low, but because they're expected to be fine with being treated so horribly for so long. All, all the time, no matter what, that in combination with the pay, I mean, it's just like such an undignified existence in many, in many instances. And it makes sense that, you know, the stimulus payments gave people a chance to actually step back and say, like, why am I working a job that not only pays me like shit, but treats me like shit, right? And I think so Amazon's also going to have an effect that I'm, it's also going to be interesting to see where it's like, okay, people now know that they can do this. Yeah. Uh, that they don't really have to work a job or that they know that they don't want to work a job where they're treated this way, but that other jobs and under industries in which they'll move to are likely the same way. You leave Mm. Walmart for Amazon and Amazon will treat you like shit. Do you leave Amazon or do you stay there? You know, you try to switch industries and maybe you'll get a higher pay, but again, the working conditions are still poor. Like it would be interesting to see what the Amazon effect ends up being on the labor side. Is it you know, you would see over time increase in just like perpetual churn. Are people going to stay at their jobs and mis- and be miserable at them? Are they going to be, uh, are firms going to try to like, you know, churn people out or hire to fire the way that Amazon does? You know, there's, there's a lot of things they could do in response to wages just being perpetually higher, right? That I don't know we've started to see them do yet other than the standard sort of like we're doing this because it's the responsible thing to do or we're doing this because Amazon is fucking forcing us to and we're going to lose all our workers to them if they if we don't, right? 
Right. This FT article also has another quote from this guy, Aaron Cheris, who's head of retail practices at Bain and Company. But he Ooh. says, you know, quote, Jeff Bezos's company should not be blamed for labor shortages, he argued, but most of my retail clients would blame them for their rising wage expectations. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, you know, th- this is, this is the worst possible thing that a business, that business can, can, can imagine is that, uh, workers would start to have expectations, right? Just like right. any expectations. Uh, and, you know, to me though, it's also <laughs> the first thing I thought of was like, it sure sounds like these, uh, these businesses are trying to put the blame off on someone else instead of taking responsibility for themselves, right? You know, what happened, what happened to that morality of responsibility that they say workers need to be taken? Whereas, you know, these companies are like, you know, wah, 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 it's this, it's that, it's, but it's not us, right? The problem isn't us. The problem is you. Right. And again, and it's also like, I think there's also an interesting statistic in here talking about how yeah, there's an NF, uh, there's a NFIB, a National Federation of, Institu- of Independent Business um, poll and, and survey that found that there was a net 34% of businesses that were small businesses that were raising the wages, but then almost half of them still had unfilled job openings, right? So then the question is, and it comes back to this, right? Why aren't people going back to work? And also what's going to change long-term, right? Like, are we, even if wages continue to increase, like what's the level at which someone goes back to work knowing that it's in retail, they're going to be treated like shit or in the restaurant, industry they're going to be treated like shit like what at what level does someone make the calculation and has the calculation been altered by the fact that they were able to leave for some time and really reevaluate things or has the calculation been altered because they now see not a host of other factors right now they see that businesses are starting to scramble and increase wages and maybe hold off or maybe uh stimulus funds or unemployment benefits or the or other sources of income or uh or other jobs or opportunities to go into a different job, right? In the industry that is not treating you like shit. Like what is, like, I feel like everything is still kind of uh, bearing out or shaking out into, into place, but that a lot of the companies made such a large yelping sound, right? When, uh, when the wages started to increase uh, that, that it's likely going to, we're going to probably see more framing like this, that Amazon is having an effect, right? Mm-hmm. That Amazon has, and I think that this is also, I don't remember if we talked about it. I think this was also an, uh, an intended consequence of the huge PR thing that they did uh, a few months ago, right? The PR push was also to get in people's head the association of Amazon and $15 minimum wage. It doesn't mm-hmm. actually matter whether that's the case. It doesn't matter that Amazon actually is paying a minimum wage that's lower than unionized warehouses, right? Or delivery mm-hmm. centers or other logistical operations. What matters is that most jobs are shit, right? Amazon pays slightly better. You don't hear about the working condition. A lot of people don't hear about the working conditions, even though, you know, we know the working conditions and they are reported on, right? So you, you associate Amazon with the $15 minimum wage that's higher than the job that you're getting right now, where you have poor working conditions that are almost certainly equal to Amazon's, right? So now the national conversation and the worker conversation is that Amazon has a uh, pays better. Right. Probably a better job to have, has better benefits. And then the business conversation and eventually the, the reporting co- situation and the, and the media coverage is going to be like Amazon set the Amazon did this. This is Amazon. We have Amazon to thank Amazon, 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 you know, I mean, and they do have a significant role, but the role that they sh- play is going to be painted as a more positive one. I feel like because of how successful the 
the preemptive uh, campaign was a few months ago. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this reminds me as well, uh, you know, uh, Jay Carney, who was what, was in the Obama's press secretary, and now he's, uh, you know, he, he's uh, the senior vice president for policy and press at Amazon. I remember he said this thing that he, you know, talking about how, like, Bernie Sanders is all talk, whereas Amazon is actually putting, you know, their money where their mouth is with the $15 an hour minimum wage. So they, they, yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. Amazon is pressing this, this, uh, this PR tactic that they are actually, you know, they are the real Bernie Sanders out here because they're actually paying that $15 an hour. But for all the reasons you, you just laid out, I mean, that's, you know, it's bullshit, but it's also like, it is really interesting to see a lot of other businesses, a lot of their, a lot of Amazon's competitors uh, in retail and big box stores and so on buying into that right and using that as a way to to kind of to shuffle some of the blame onto Amazon um, for why they can't hire any workers you know not you know I mean they could hire workers if they if they were to pay higher wages right but that's that's never it's not even like that's the last ditch effort that's something that never even enters the mind of uh, of executives at like Target or Walmart or Levi Strauss or whatever right the idea that like your your so-called uh, employment problem is a you problem you could fix that really quickly by just paying higher hourly wages right exactly and so it's you just pick yourself up by the bootstraps i mean that's really all you have to do you did that it'd be fine <laughs> that's right that's right um all right. So, I mean, I think that, you know, this isn't, you know, that that's another story in our long standing kind of uh, ongoing analysis of the, the political economy of Amazon is, you know, the very interesting this, to, to hear the perspective from the FT, from the, the business community, the way that they are kind of uh, putting blame on Amazon as well, but for the exact inverse reason that we are, right? They're, they're, they're saying, you know, we, we, we say they exploit la- uh, labor too too much whereas the business community is like they're not exploiting labor enough right (laughs) they they need to get back down on our level one day i'm gonna throw it over to you ed tell us a little bit about what's going on with Didi in china oh yeah, beautiful. I mean, it's a, it's a tragic story of overreach uh, for our Chinese um, our Chinese tech giant friends. Don't so, we love continue. don't we love our Icarus? Right, <laughs> we're too close to the sun. So I think this continues the kind of you know this in of itself is a little addition to like you know we've talked a bit. We have episodes on Chinese antitrust and the move towards an antitrust review regime. Um, and one of the things that the Chinese government has started to pay a little bit more attention to is these large uh, digital uh, platforms, these tech companies uh, or companies that style themselves as tech companies because they are operating in traditional industries, but without as much regulatory oversight because they are tech or they're asking for concessions or different regulatory um, frameworks to be applied to them, right? So one thing that China did not let slip or that they just simply said was the problem here was that, um, you know, DD, they, the cyber space, cyberspace administration of China, um, when it, it's, the, it's the main internet regulator in the country, uh, issued like a, you know, a announcement uh, saying that DD was going to be removed from all app stores in China for uh, serious problems uh, about the uh, collection and use of uh, consumer data, right? Uh, and 
basically for, for, for listeners who don't know, DD is the the leading ride hailing company in China, right? Like Uber right. doesn't operate there, so it's DD. yeah. Uber got beat out after a pretty impressive fraud uh, a ring of fraudulent activity where riders were like and drivers were collaborating to make like fake rides or to use incentives to get subsidies to not actually give a ride after a lot of employees were poached by DD or the company operations were sabotaged or fake alerts were sent out so that no one signed up. I mean, a pretty impressive corporate uh, espionage and sabotage campaign <laughs> uh, that burned them out of uh, the largest market for ride hailing in the world. And so uh, DD has largely been uh, supreme there. I had one competitor that it entered into an agreement with and acquired a few years ago. So it's largely just been DD's uh, home turf and stomping grounds. Um, so basically the announcement was, okay, you are removed from or basically all the app stores were ordered to remove DD from li- uh, from their listings um, and said that DD would have to follow a strict set of uh, legal requirements and, and orders to solve these problems around uh, cybersecurity rules, cybersecurity violations, uh, misuse of you know personal data and user data. Um, uh, DD responded. Uh, pretty quickly, um, saying that it would work to, you know, um, fix everything there and said that people who already had the app would be able to use it, but it's no longer available for a redownload, right? Um, this is a pretty big step. It's also been interesting to see how it is being, uh, talked about, right? Because, all right, so it comes two days after the IPO. Or, I mean, not the IPO. The, I mean, it is an IPO. It comes about two, three days after it's first listed on the New York Stock Exchange this week, right? Um, I do, I do love how the Chinese government does love targeting like these <laughs> giant IPOs, either with Ant, like just shutting it down completely, <laughs> or Didi letting it happen and then hitting them. <laughs> yeah, it's so. It's I can't imagine a it's similar like, thing. It's like happening. how many short positions on Didi are in the China? Like how many people? How many like <laughs> how many members of the CCP have short positions on Didi? <laughs> no, it's actually it's um it's Mads Mickelson um from Casino Royale just uh, shorting the shit out of uh, DD and then trying to get the Chinese government to destroy them. But it's a is the it's a reboot of Casino Royale. Essentially, uh, I think the main takeaway here, right, is that this is I mean this is in line with the antitrust moves by China and that if China's antitrust is happening for different reasons than the United States. Like in the United States, as people like Carl Bode have been, you know, talking about, um, there's a huge amount of euphoria about the potentiality of GOP and Democrat collaboration. And while there is some rhetorically, right, there are reasons to doubt whether the GOP is actually going to do it. One, because they don't actually target the real, like other monopolies, right? We have, we have, we have the we have the online social media monopolies. We have like the platform monopolies. We have e-commerce plat, uh, platform monopolies. We also have telecom monopolies. And you will not hear peep from either party really about them, right? Mm-hmm. Even though they control almost everything that you consume information-wise, uh, and they're gatekeepers to cultural production, they're gatekeepers to information access and distribution, but there's almost no interest in any sort of antitrust review. So that suggests that, okay, if it's not like on strict structural guidelines about what qualifies and doesn't qualify as an antitrust violation, then it's maybe either it's either ideologically motivated based on like what the different groups want for out of antitrust 
or, um, you know, there's not as much as serious commitment to it from the Republicans, right? But in China, the antitrust agenda, the antitrust moves are more so about these are firms that are operating spaces where they're trying to uh, spread their wings, right? Get a little bit more capital or, or undermine uh, capital limitations or capital controls that they that have been established on them and other firms that traditionally operate in that space. And the most you know, prominent examples, Alibaba, right? Alibaba got shit fucked up um, and was fined $2.8 billion in April, right? There was a huge antitrust uh, uh, investigation that's open against Meituan. We talked about Meituan in our platform episode uh, where we translated the first part of an investigative report into Meituan delivery drivers, uh, delivery couriers. Um, ByteDance has been... Uh, has a uh, investigation opened against it, right? There are, there are like a host of companies that are being investigated and targeted and looked at because in one way or another, they're trying to offer goods or services, right? That would give them a little bit more autonomy and freedom from oversight by China and, mm-hmm. and regulatory control and try to carve out a little bit more space for themselves to get capital, whether from investors or from other sources other um, outside of the guidelines and dictates of China. And so they're going to get hit with these fines and they're going to get hit with your reviews and probes and threats of breakups unless they modify business models or abandon products, right? Mm-hmm. That is something you're not going to see here because there's not really that much interest in like structural planning of uh, the markets, uh, structural planning of like what they're actually going to provide uh, to the public. It's more so like here, the philosophy is very much like if they like, just let them build, you know, let's just let them do whatever they want. And then like, mm-hmm. if it becomes a problem at some point, we'll like think about having some hearings about it. Yeah. It's very reactive. In yeah, that way. yeah. And, and even then they're still very hesitant to do anything about it. And it's going to be like, you know, years of hearings and, right. and, and, you know, partisan battles and things like that. And that's to say, like, I think also, I mean, China's antitrust reviews are good in some ways and bad in others, but they're motivated. They're just, they have different motivations. They have different, or mm-hmm. they have different drivers and interests that are here out of work. Um, they don't have the weird partisan squabbling because it's a one party state, but they also are much more interested in like specific structural remedies because of the impetus to actually plan what's going to be on the market, you know, where the money is going to go, uh, what kind of products and goods and services are going to be offered and what they're going to look like and how they're going to interact with each other or the central state. In my reading of it, it seems to be much more motivated by um, asserting state dominance over the yeah. market. So like like with the antitrust investigation into like Meituan, right? Which as you talked about, right? We talked about that episode. We talked about Meituan's labor practices. And then like, you know, uh, shortly after our episode dropped on that, um, you know, China opened up a, a antitrust investigation to Meituan, but it was not focused on labor, right? It was focused on competition, right? It was focused on a way that seemed very, you know, um, almost American in that sense that it was like hyper-focused on like competition in the market, right? Not, 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 you know, nothing else really was, was at issue there. And, and I mean, that strikes me as, yeah, very interesting way to, to understand how the, you know, China, the Chinese state goes about you know, in this new kind of resurgence of uh, attention on antitrust that's happening like globally, right? But like mm-hmm. um, this, uh, uh, the New York Times reporter, right, that um, another uh, major internet co- um, company, you know, ByteDance, who's, the, you know, it's the parent 
company of TikTok um, was, you know, summoned before regulators in order to, quote, put the nation's interest first, right? So it's like, uh, again, it, it seems to be seems to me to be that like this this antitrust investigation is about kind of asserting an adversarial relationship between the state and these companies that are getting a little bit too big for their britches right trying to escape um state planning and control yeah you know i'm trying to see i remember i do remember um in the filing right they did say that the review was a risk um uh and that regulators might actually like act against them um, as one of the major investment risks, but uh, I think they, I think they, I think they honestly did discount it, um, and I think partially that's because they are not like a fintech company or financial company, and they're not also operating in a way that I, I don't know. I, it, my sense or my like the firms, I guess, that have been really hit by the antitrust action have also been firms that you could conceivably say, or that you know the. Chinese state could conceivably stay, say the the operation of has some, you know, national security interest, right? For example, yeah. like with ByteDance talking about the algorithm and where it's going to end the, the the core algorithm and where it's going to end up. Um, and if it should be spun off or sold, you know, or and trying to review the sale of that. Or with um, Alibaba or with Tencent or with Baidu, you know, like all of these are firms that are like deeply ingratiated and integrated into daily life, right? Mm -hmm. um, because they're payments platforms, right? Yeah, and that, that's the thing is like they're, they're transition into like finance even more so, right? That's mm -hmm. really what it seems like triggered uh, the kind of ire of, of, the, of the Chinese state was, mm -hmm. you know, like, yeah, with our anti, with our uh, Chinese antitrust episode, we were talking about how, you know, the regulators from the, um, from the central bank in China talking about how like, you know, no, they call themselves tech companies, but they are operating like banks and financial institutions and they will not escape the regulations of financial institutions just because they call themselves tech companies. Right, right. And they won't. <laughs> you know, it doesn't look like they will, uh, but we'll have to see. I wonder how how long it'll take for uh, for uh, Didi to actually get back up on the App Store. Yeah, why do you think Didi was taken off? Because Didi wasn't the only company or the only company that was targeted, right? In this kind of broad sweeping look at uh, the the collection of personal data and and cybersecurity measures, which Didi was kind of you know dinged on. Um, they you know the uh, Chinese regulators named hundreds of apps, right? Um, mm -hmm. That were uh, operating in some improper way uh, with regards to data, um, but uh, Didi was uh, the only one or among one of the only ones that was ordered to be removed from mobile stores, right? Most of the other apps named were just like, all right, hey, like here's a fine, fix your problem um, and keep going, right? Do you think it's because DD is just like so big that they just had their IPO? Like, uh, like what, what, I mean, what's your uh, first kind of inclinations as to why they were, they were completely removed from the mobile stores, yeah, my inclination is probably the most flagrant and the most, uh, it's the biggest message you can send. They just had a big, they had the biggest IPO, um, for a Chinese company in almost a decade, right? Four and a half billion dollars. Um, but also it seems to me, uh, that the ride hail apps are apps where you can collect information, personal information 
that far exceeds what is immediately within the scope of the service, but mm-hmm. also cannot like immediately monetize, right? Like uh, if you're using payments processors, online lending apps, like, you know, these other sorts of platforms, the information they're illegally collecting it's all is information that conceivably is like within the scope, but like they went about it in some shady way to grab. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it is easy to see how, like, I mean, just take the United States, the United States, what did like Uber was when it was operating illegally in cities would just like, sur- it, it joked about surveillance journalists, but it also did actually track regulators and it grayballed them from mm-hmm. the app so that they weren't able to use it in the first place. Right. Um, these are the apps track where you go, how frequently you go there, where you stay, you know, the information about your phone, information about what you look at immediately before, during and after trips, or when you decide to not take a trip or when you decide to take a trip, why and that they can, you know, conceivably use enough of the information from your sessions before a trip to see what motivates you to, you know, go in one place or another, or what are the conditions in which you'll Mm -hmm. abandon a trip, what prices, like there's a lot of information that can be gleaned illegally that can be used to uh, offer new services that they wouldn't otherwise or acquire new companies that they wouldn't otherwise or to you know do more pricing experiments that they wouldn't otherwise so i could see them doing a more egregious grab than like alibaba would right because there's more that they can gain from going for information that they normally wouldn't have access to or have a reason to use and and yeah, I think that all makes complete sense. And and yeah, absolutely. Like that is some that's some very valuable and very revealing information. I also think that um, you know, and this goes to something that, you know, what you were just saying as well, that it does seem that there's a, a kind of tactic here that the that we see from the, the Chinese state in these kind of, you know, crackdowns on on tech companies, um, is to make a put a head on a pike, right? Make yeah. a big example. And and be yeah. like Yo, like we can we can crack down on Ant. We can crack down on DD. You think you mm-hmm. can escape us? They couldn't. Mm-hmm. You think you can? <laughs> no, you can't. <laughs> you know. Yeah. So yeah. Like imagine if they do a massive fine. I can't imagine them doing like a two point eight billion dollar fine. But DD just got four billion. Imagine if they bu- find them even a billion or two. Like that is a huge sum of the money you just offered publicly. Your shares are already underwater from the IPO price now because of the news on this. Like what's like that? That's all pretty. Mm-hmm. That's all a pretty strong rebuke um, from mm-hmm. the state to companies that might want to fuck around and find out. Yeah, they, yeah, fuck around and find out. That's the that's the motto of Chinese <laughs> antitrust. <laughs> I mean, two point eight billion dollars is massive, of course. Uh, for a company like Alibaba, it's not so massive comparatively, mm-hmm. but like. You know, it does. It does send a message. It does send a message. Could you imagine uh, the, you know, like the SEC uh, or the FTC in the U.S. like finding a company two point eight billion dollars? Like, pretty hard no. to imagine that happening. Although, although Lena Khan, what's up? Maybe, maybe <laughs> Lena Khan's going to put Amazon's head on a pike. Take a little, you know, uh, you know, send send its own example. We can only hope. Um, I, I will do a little. I'll do a little teaser here. We we are planning very soon to do a deep dive into um, do a whole episode on Lena Khan's work. Um, you know the the work on antitrust. Her very famous uh, article in the Yale uh, Yale Law Journal on an- Amazon's antitrust paradox. Um, you know the stuff that like 
you know, made her bones and, and, you know, put her on such a rapid rise to the top. We'll, we'll be, we'll be coming at y'all in, a, in the next couple of weeks with, uh, with a deep dive on Lena Khan. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking a lot about infrastructure right now. So this uh-huh. is a really interesting article, but I'm thinking about infrastructure because of my own life right now. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was telling the, I was telling the boys before we recorded that, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm recording these podcasts this week in my, in my office, uh, on campus, an office I haven't been in in two months, um, cause we were in lockdown for a while, but now we're like last few weeks able to come back to the office. Um, because my my internet service providers having network issues all week so like my my uh, my download speeds are normal but my upload speeds are zero so it's like the internet has just become a television now like uh-huh. i can consume all the content i want but i cannot contribute or interact in any in any way I I'm, I'm shadow banned from the whole internet <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm going to put my conspiracy theorist cap on between Ed's car accident and Jason's internet. I think someone's trying to get to us. <laughs> In the most oblique ways possible. I know. <laughs> the most oblique ways. The most infrastructural uh, ways possible. What if someone you uh, went out to a party with Ed ordered a ride hill and we crashed it? <laughs> Jaden, what if uh, you weren't able to uh, upload Post. anything? <laughs> yeah, what if you Post. No, <laughs> just put me in jail. Just put me in jail. It's it's the end of uh, it's the end of the Planet Apes movie. But instead of the Statue of Liberty, it's just like ninety nine percent. Um, all your tweets and everything sending and it's like no you bastards you ruined it you ruined it now I'm really certain to believe that that's really the case I had sewage back up into my my bathroom last week so I think someone's oh, out to get us guys I mean this the machines kill you know that is right Jeremy had yeah Jeremy had sewage back up because of uh, a sewer pipe like burst uh under his front yard or whatever we are all getting targeted in different infrastructural ways um, it makes sense (laughs) it was like that um that uh, guy who was angry at us said you know uh the reason we don't we don't actually have the full name of the podcast up it's called this mission kills but it's really this mission kills communists and (laughs) we're starting with ourselves and (laughs) and our infrastructure (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, still can't man. believe that i still can't that that's so wild that's so wild <laughs> for people who don't know <laughs> you know <laughs> ed posted a while ago uh <laughs> we we get we, we've got we've got a lot of tankies mad at us <laughs> you know for various reasons we we riled them up we riled them up oh, um, <laughs> But that was very funny. Like some dude is saying that the reason why we, <laughs> the reason why the, <laughs> the show is called "This Machine Kills" um, is because actually what we mean is this machine kills communist. <laughs> we are we are a, a, a secretly anti-communist, but also run by 
literal communist and anarchist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so who knows? Who can be sure? Who can be sure? This is a very self-hating. TMK is self-hating. <laughs> oh, man. And so I think with this Amazon, with oh, well, I mean, not Amazon. I think Amazon because data centers. But this, this is a piece uh, by mm. Olivia Solon. She runs the um, NBC News Tech Investigations Desk. Um, they do great work. If you listen to the show, you should also listen. You should read some of the tech investigation stories. They also they have yeah bit, people you know, like Olivia Solon, um, uh-huh. April Glazer. Uh-huh. Like they they are constantly doing good work. Mm-hmm. I think uh, yeah, all their investigations read the must reads. Um, I'll start out just by reading. I guess this the the sections that set the stage for this because it is a pretty uh, you know dire situation, right? Uh, so on May 17th, the City Council of Mesa, Arizona, approved the $800 million development of an enormous data center, a warehouse filled with computers storing all of the photos, documents, and other information we store, quote, in the cloud on an arid plot of land in the eastern part of the city. But keeping the rows of powerful computers inside the data center from overheating will require up to 1.25 million gallons of water each day. A price each that day. <laughs> each day. <laughs> it's a, it's a mind boggling. It's a mind boggling number. I'm trying to let me see if there's a good visualization that I can use. Why would this exist in Mesa, Arizona, a town I used to live nearby? I, I lived in I, I did grad school in Tempe, Arizona. It's it's literally in the middle of the Sonoran Desert. <laughs> okay, uh, a million a million gallons of water would be a cube that is about 51.1 feet on each side, or it would be 25,000 bathtubs, or it would be a swimming pool that's 267 feet long, 50 feet wide, and 10 feet deep. Huge. Okay. I can't, that doesn't really help me either. (laughs) (laughs) In other words, too big. (laughs) Too too fucking big for one data center to ask to get dumped on it in a day, every day, forever. That's it. It's forever. Yeah. Um, uh, And so, you know, Vice Mayor Jen Duff, you know, was like the price is too high. Quote, this has been the driest 12 months in 126 years, she said, citing data from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Quote, we are on red alert, and I think data centers are an irresponsible use of our water. End quote. Duff was the only Mesa City Council member to vote against the development, but she's one of a growing number of people nationwide raising concerns about the proliferation of data centers which guzzle electricity and water while creating relatively few jobs, particularly in drought-stricken parts of the United States. Right? Now, the data centers, they're proliferating because of the rise of data-intensive cloud services. And we've talked a bit about like the political economy of this, right? Where you have private corporations renting computer resources to other private corporations, to government agencies, right? And these are, you know, they're in, in effect, and I think, you know... um I've heard it talked about this way by Morozov, but I think it's a sort of like a good way. It's it's it, to think about it. It's, it essentially ends up being like a rent, 
or, or tax mm-hmm. that you pay to Amazon and Google and Microsoft, whether you're a startup, whether you're a government agency, no matter who you are, if you use computing resources, you're paying a tax in one way or another to these massive firms, right? Or about So, you know, one research group tells them that they have about 600, there's about 600 hyperscale data centers, right? Which are just, you know, data centers solely dedicated to the, uh, use uh, operated by one company and then rented, right? Whoever needs them. Uh that's that's 600 at the end of 2020. There were about 300 in 2015, and about 40% of them are in the United States. And Amazon, Google, and Microsoft own about half of all of them, right? And then you have another 1,800 co-location data centers. And these are warehouses that are, quote, filled with a variety of smaller company server hardware that share the same cooling system, electricity, and security, right? They're smaller, but they're even more resource intensive because they have a diverse arrangement of computer systems, some efficient, some dog shit efficient, some really efficient, right? Not that any of that really matters. The point is that they all are using uh, huge amounts of resources. And one strategy that has been used is to target cash-strapped, resource-starving uh, st- uh, regions, right? Uh, it is a weird but sensible, I guess, strat- strategic move to target areas where they're going through droughts, right? Because they have a lot of solar and wind energy, right? Uh, researchers at Virginia Tech said that one-fifth of the data centers draw water from moderately to highly stressed watersheds largely in the Western United States, right? And so these data centers, right, there's a bunch of things that are dictating where exactly they get built or where exactly the company's targeting communities will put them, right? Part of it is how close you are to customers and other infrastructure that you can kind of freeload off of. Um, others, inc- Other factors may be the cost of the land. Others may be the tax incentives or the goodies that can be, or the subsidies that can be offered by a local government. And others can be whether or not you can generate electricity cheaply through, you know, solar or um, or wind, right? Uh, but mm-hmm. little to none of the considerations are environmental, right? The NBC report talks about how all centers need form some form of cooling technology, typically either computer room air conditioning systems, which are essentially large units that just that just shove cold air into the room with the water or refrigerant, or evaporative cooling. Uh, which evaporates water to cool the air, right? Evaporative cooling uses a lot of, a lot less electricity. NBC writes, but more water. And since water is cheaper than the electricity, the data centers tend to opt for water intensive methods, mm-hmm. right? And this is again at, uh, inside of an industry that is growing rapidly that will like, that will reach $200 billion this year, uh, in its total value, which is 6% increase from uh, 2020 and then anticipating another three to 4% each year. Right. So three to 4% is, um, you know, a few billion each year being tacked on, you know? Yeah. And that's just the, that's just the cost of spending on glow on this data center infrastructure globally. Right. Right. That, Mm -hmm. that, I mean, that's, that's insane. Right. I I mean, there's, there's, there's a, there's a very interesting, um, you know, almost delicious, if it wasn't so repugnant, um, irony here that like, you know, as you were just laid out, one of the major factors that um, play into how these uh, data centers choose where they're located, um, you know, these data centers, which are, you know, as I've called them, as we've called them, you know, the internet of landlords, right? Like they are the rentiers of the internet. Um, but 
they are also choosing these locations for very uh, uh, traditional landlord um, uh, kind of considerations. I, you know, you, you go to a place like Mesa, Arizona, because there's just a lot of land, uh, which is cheap, or, you know, in a lot of cases, the city council will just give you it for free. You know, they'll just right. give you like a, you know, these like, you know, we hear about these like, you know, hundred year leases for like a dollar a year, you know, these like dollar annual hundred year leases. Um, and that's the kind, those are the kinds of deals that these uh, uh, companies like Google, Microsoft, Amazon, Apple are striking for these data centers. And these data centers are massive, right? Like, like they have a massive footprint, not just, uh, you know, in terms of the amount of electricity and water that they use, but just in terms of the amount of land that they require and it's um and it's it's kind of mind-boggling right the example we had that's 1.25 million gallons right and they that's not even like a typical data center typical data center uh they write is three to five million gallons of water which is about as much fucking water as a city of 30,000 to 50,000 people use right so that a day I mean, I also amend that and say day, right? And so this is all a bit worrying because even though they become more efficient, even though they don't use as much water as in, as uh, Solon writes as you know agriculture, the the fact of the it the fact of the matter is they're using as much or more water than the people who fucking live there, right? In the communities that are suffering droughts in the middle of a period in which we're going to be suffering droughts more and more frequently. Right, where infrastructure that is supposed to provide or adapt or serve as a bulwark to climate change is inadequate, yet to be built, or when it gets built eventually, uh, failing or going to fail. Right, so it's not it's not immediately clear when you're looking at these data center projects. I think and data centers are probably a good example. Of this is why they should be allowed to proliferate, or if they're being allowed to proliferate. You know, why are they being allowed to do so when they're so intensely environmentally negative, right? They're not mm-hmm. helping the communities. They're not really providing jobs for the communities. They're taking a lot of energy and resources and they're competing for it with the people who actually live there. And it is largely because it's just part of a system that where the main goal is just providing ever growing a plethora of services and computing or computing resource services to startups to other mm-hmm. large firms and to the government right but privately right this i think would, that, that mm-hmm. yeah that's the key question here is that that all for what right they're using all this water electricity land right these just massive massive ecological costs for what mm-hmm. for for bullshit reasons right they're not yeah. growing food with it right they're not providing uh you know for people uh in any kind of significant way um it's all just uh, the necessary infrastructure of data capitalism of digital capitalism of a lot of a lot of bullshit services right uh a lot of it is also it's just like like you were just saying right it's like you know they're providing servers for not only like so you can watch netflix or whatever but they're providing service for yeah all these like startups which in a year are you know going to burn through a lot of VC cash and then like be non-existent within, you know, within a year or two. Right. So, uh, you know, so it, it really is just like so much of this data infrastructure, which has these extremely real material planetary environmental cost, um, is like so much of the, 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 the political economy of the, of Silicon Valley, 
based on burn rate, right? It's just based on on burning through capital, burning through resources, um, all in the hopes that like, you know, there might be some return on it uh, in the, in you know, some return on a small percentage uh, in the future. It becomes even more absurd when you start asking that question, all for what? And realizing that's all for the most like uh, inane, mundane bullshit reasons. It's it's really it's really the hallmark of a of an efficient, uh, smart, you know, a well run system where all the concerns are the wrong concerns that are being that are motivating development in each direction. And this and I think really data centers are such a perfect example of it because again, you know, like as we've talked about, most of the stuff that is made does not really need to be made. It's socially useless. But of course, that's not what we care about, and so we just have an ever growing wasteland of uh, repetitive copycat gimmicks or goods and services meant to attract enough capital to disrupt some other gimmick or monopolize Mm -hmm. and provide gimmicks until they're monopolized so that they can then pivot to the state as their main client or pivot to other firms as their main client. Uh, You know, all these weird, all these long-term gimmicks that are wasteful, right? And, and just, um, ruin everything everything else until then i think data centers really you know um are also another perfect example because of how loud how how incredibly loud local concerns are right right that a lot of this is you know socially useless but i think as this article uh this investigation by olivia Solon really proves as well that it's, it, it's beyond socially useless it is uh actively socially harmful right, right? Um, you know, the, it would be one thing if this stuff was just like socially useless bullshit. We're just like, why are we doing this? Right? Like, what, what's the point of this? But it's a whole other thing to be like, not only is this useless, but it's actively contributing to, uh, the downfall of human civilization in like a very material ecological way. Right. right. We're talking about consuming massive amounts of water, electricity. Right. Uh, I mean, the, you know, climate change is, the, you know, we're already facing up on the effects of climate change right now. It's only going to get worse. You think that, uh, you know, having these massive hyperscale data centers are, are, are helping at all, you know? Um, you know, there, there's uh, been a lot of really great research on the, the environmental cost of training, like, you know, large uh, machine learning models or like uh, large like natural language processing, right? I mean, this is what um, Timnit Jabru and and the you know the AI ethics team at Google um, ended up getting ousted over, right? Was was a paper about the uh, the ecological cost of training um, large natural language processing models, right? And Google is like, hold up, can't be can't be throwing a spotlight on that. <laughs> you know, we're, mm-hmm. we're that, that that's, you know, that's not good. We can't be highlighting that people can't know that the cloud is actually uh, actively contributing to the burning of the planet. And I don't think a lot of people realize this. I mean, I'm sure TMK listeners know this, uh, you know, full well, but I've heard a lot of people, um, people who I thought would know better 
just you know admit that they had you know had no idea uh, that uh, something like AI actually had like a massive environmental or ecological cost, right? Like people still have this in their mind that the cloud exists out there in some immaterial way, that things like you know data or AI or whatever, um, you know, it's digital, which means it's not material, which means it doesn't have analog, uh, you know, environmental impacts on on the world or on on, on communities. But that is so far from the truth that is so far from the truth i mean we 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 cannot disentangle uh digital capitalism and fossil capitalism those two things are hand in hand uh with each other in a in a very very serious way right right let's not forget some of that capitalism is state-owned <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> How can we forget that? How can we forget that? Man, you really got taken to the. To, your mentions were hell there over the. I read weekend. every single one because it was so funny. I it's so it is really funny because the it's just the neoliberal account just sicked like a bunch of uh, a bunch of uh, Ayn Rand uh, disciples on me, and um, they spent hours DMing me, emailing me asking me to delete the tweet because it was disingenuous or dishonest or it was <laughs> stupid or ignorant or sending me textbook definitions of capitalism is like, Oh, okay. Oh, well, damn. You, I, I learned a lot. I learned that nobody had an actual, an actual <laughs> argument for me beyond saying, Oh, look at this idiot. Look, at, he thinks that the state can own a firm, uh, run it for profit or run it with the intention of generating profits that can be redirected elsewhere. He thinks that's capitalism. Hmm. You know, you know what Silly. else is a state-owned enterprise? Aramco. Yeah, <laughs> it, Aramco oh. is socialism. Actually, oh my god! Actually, I want them to make that argument. I would. You know what? That's what I'm going to start doing. I'm going to start saying Aramco is the most successful socialist enterprise. That's that's my <laughs> bit. My new <laughs> bit. Aramco. <laughs> if Marx knew about Aramco, he would have never written the Communist Manifesto because he'd been like, it's already here, baby. It's already here. <laughs> <laughs> That's the new bit. That's the new bit. <laughs> I mean, it's, it is the, it is the core irony here that, um, the only people who actually understand capitalism are like, anti-capitalist because like you know capitalists don't have to understand it right they just they just it's they the system is built for them they don't need to understand it uh and so (laughs) your tweet just oh that was so good it just revealed how people just have no fucking clue (laughs) what what they're talking about and never will but it's okay you know that's what we're here for political economy and education about political economy which will help these people will help others you know learn the new the, the way of the land and how things are working <laughs> yeah i mean i hate to end the episode on, on another like downer dour note <laughs> but i think we are running up on time um is there anything else you wanted to, to jump in and say about this data center story? I mean, there there is there is a lot more that we didn't even really get into about it. So, um, yeah, I would say you know I think well the my my main thing was like uh, I think water also is a good example just because you know there is it's it's really easy to get right. It's really it's a it's it's a life it's the lifeblood of regions. 
it's dwindling in supplies, right? And it's being used for a pretty useless enterprise. And that the moves instead to do it are to do things where it's like, um, one of my favorite paragraphs in here, Google spokeswoman Mara Harris said that the company partnered with local community stakeholders and water conservation experts to assess the data center's impact and conducted studies that showed that even in a worse, extreme worst case scenario, the data center's water use in the area would be sustainable. Hey, so we looked at the thing that everyone was worried about and we found that it were it is good. It's actually really good. <laughs> and this is in reference to um, in 2017 conservation groups in South Carolina were saying, oh, Google should not be allowed to draw like one and a half million gallons of water every day from a depleted aquifer to cool uh, a new data center or an expanding data center in Goose Creek, South Carolina, right? And the, and the Goose Creek already used four million gallons of tap water, right? And it was killing the, uh, it was helping kill the groundwater supply, right? So there's a two-year battle, and then Google agreed to a bunch of conditions uh, that were specifically like only during certain parts of the year, so that it wouldn't like make the droughts worse. Um, and all of this resulted in, in part in a report where they basically said, "Look, the thing that we were going to do that y'all worried about, you don't really need to worry about it because it's sustainable. Because and you know we would ne- we would never exhaust the water supply." I love that quote to to claim that even in quote extreme worst case scenarios that the water use in the area is sustainable. Uh, what that tells me is that there's been talks for a long time about the upcoming water wars. Right there, there are going to be wars waged over access to water. Uh, with you know perhaps in our lifetime, um, I think very likely. And what that tells me is that Google is fully ready to be a warlord, uh, a water lord. They will they will preserve access to that water even in extreme worst case scenarios, i.e roving bandits, uh, you know, Mad Max happening, you know, people, uh, you know, roving bands of, of, of water warriors uh, trying to, you know, no, Google, Google will defend their data center against all comers uh, and, and maintain access to that water. I, 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 didn't, I, I did not expect uh, that, the, that the, the real water lords uh, of the future would be Google, Microsoft, Amazon, these companies. But, you know, I should have seen it coming. I should have seen it coming. Right. Um, you know, the, I remember reading stories a long time ago, like years ago, about uh, this Texas oil baron, T. Boone Pickens, which is the most Texas oil baron name ever to exist. <laughs> um, but there are these stories, I think, in like the Texas Monthly, which, you know, great, uh, great kind of independent magazine, but about how T. Boone Pickens was buying up water rights all around Texas, but, you know, around the world as well. Um, you know, and, and, what, you know, and also doing things like, uh, you know, some like there will be blood type shit, right? Of like mm-hmm. snaking underground and tapping reservoirs and other people, you know, and other people's lands and draining those like underground water reservoirs, um, draining them dry and, and stockpiling that stuff. Uh, and, and, and the whole reason why he's doing that is that, you know, he's going long on water, right? He's like, this, this, this will be the key. This will be the oil of the future. Water will be the oil of the future and and you know i think that future is coming a lot quicker than a lot of people wanted to admit or realized it was it's here yeah it's here the future is now 
the future yeah. is now. Yeah. <laughs> oh, There's nothing you can do about it. All right. I think on that note, the future is now, you know, just grin your teeth and bear it. Uh, I think we'll, we'll wrap up with your team game this week. <laughs> I don't know. Start filling your bathtubs up. <laughs> That's you the know. way to do it. We got to have our own reservoir. <laughs> our own reserves. <laughs> fill up 20,000. Fill up 20,000 uh, baths. You know? Yeah, you and 19,000 whatever of your closest friends all fill up your bathtubs and, and you can and you can help uh, keep the data center going for one day. <laughs> right. That's the future. Uh, I want to thank everybody for listening. Um, and you can find us at patreon.com slash this machine kills for more, uh, episodes every single week. We hit you with a premium episode every single week. And this, the one we got coming up is going to be a really good one. We've got an excellent reading series. We will be actually returning to Mesa, Arizona, to the Phoenix metropolitan area. Um, but not to look at data centers, but to look at, uh, another, another, uh, technology that is, that, this area is a test bed for autonomous vehicles. We'll be looking at and and, and we're going to be reading a beautiful, beautiful article by the king of all useful idiots, Malcolm Gladwell himself. I didn't uh, even realize it was in the same place. <laughs> you know, it was the oh. same exact place. Oh my god! I want to so, die. <laughs> <laughs> a place I used to live. A place I did yeah. grad school at, um, and it's a very uh, inhospitable place to live for many reasons, not just the oppressive heat and drought but uh as we will hear from malcolm gladwell also the transportation infrastructure um, yeah i have a friend <laughs> who lives out there and she fucking hates it for all those reasons 111 degrees phoenix can't really be that hot can it oh my god it's like standing on the side this city should not exist it is a monument to man's arrogance Yep. So infrastructure always trying to kill you <laughs> one way or another. <laughs> that's the, that's the takeaway here. <laughs> uh, yeah. So find us on Patreon for, for, for more of that to come later this week. Um, and so until then, uh, later. Adios.